you have reached a phone call from Paul. A Literary Hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Part 1 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Andrew Solomon. Hello. Hello, is this Andrew Solomon? Yes, it is indeed. Andrew, what a pleasure to hear your voice. What a pleasure to hear yours. How, how have you been? I have been very well, thank you. How have you been? Well, a mixture, really. Um, you know, with, with everything that's happening in the world now, which takes me immediately to, to the book that you're, you're just publishing now, it, it feels very precarious, and it feels as though the world has become a very hurt, vulnerable place. I think the world is very hurt and vulnerable. What I'm always afraid of is that the violence that we read about in the newspapers, which is so dramatic, will invoke a similar response of violence, perhaps less obviously dramatic, in response. And I feel as though the world feels precarious from both sides, from the side of the attacker as well as of the attacked. And, and do you feel that it is more so now than before, or do you feel that it feels like more so now than before because we seem to know more now than before about the violence? Well, to some extent, violence is cyclical. There's always violence somewhere in the world, and there are periods when it seems to surge up in a place that makes us feel vulnerable, us in the West, us in the United States, us in Europe, whatever us you want to define. I think what's shocking at the moment is the sense of randomness to the violence, that it's not a focused campaign by a single identifiable country waging war against another country in a way that is comprehensible. The violence feels as though it comes out of nowhere. It comes from all around us. And in the same way that you can traumatize an animal more through random acts of attack than through consistent ones. So this randomness frightens us more even than the focused attack that was, for example, the Blitz in London. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if you... I mean, what, I mean, to ask the Tolstoy question, what, what can be done? I think the first thing that can be done, the most urgent thing that can be done, is to try to understand the other side. The assumption and the way it's presented tends to be, we are leading pleasant and peaceable lives, and these crazy, inexplicable people from someplace else are trying to destroy us. We have to recognize, in the first place, that our peaceful lives sometimes come at a cost elsewhere, but also to try to engage with the people who hate us. There's a sort of tyranny in the American system at the moment uh, in which people seem somehow to think we can achieve true isolationism and that if we build enough walls and prevent enough people from coming into the country and do all of those other things that we can make ourselves safe, that we can put ourselves into a fortress, what we're actually doing is to put ourselves into a prison, and it's a prison constructed partly out of ignorance. What we need to do when we're under attack from the world is not to hide from the world, but to engage with it and to look at it and to see other points of view, no matter how obscure or difficult they may seem. Of course, we have to defend ourselves as well. 
events often invites brutality from our side, and sometimes that's the appropriate response. Loving your enemy isn't always such an easy task. No. There's an openness that we need. You remember in Russia, when it was all changing, the word was glasnost, which meant openness. And I feel like it's that openness that seems to me to be under threat now, and that the threat to our own openness is a more severe threat than the threat to our physical safety. The, to, to some extent, it makes me think of, of the art of accommodation, of trying to, to find a way, uh, not, not necessarily of conciliation, but of, 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 to some extent, being porous and listening. And I, I know that both, both of our mothers impressed upon us how important it is to listen rather than simply to talk. Yes, my mother used to say, a good listener is always more interesting than a good talker. And my mother used to say, <laughs> isn't this interesting, Andrew? <laughs> my mother used to say, um, we have two ears and one mouth. And I think she said that to me, you know, when I was 11 years old, because I wasn't listening. And here we are, you and I, and we talk for a living, so it's not as though we've put that piece of it aside. And yet... I think, and I hope, that we talk in a way that's also informed by listening. I was going to say, and yet... Um, I mean, and yet, I, of course, I don't want to flatter either you or me in the process, but maybe follow it with a, a question about what it is that we can do, and in a way, what it is that you try to do to bring together, in so many different ways, people who are different, foreign, at times alien, certainly not similar to you, through your writing, through your speaking, and I think also through your amazing ability to empathetically listen. There are many people who have said to me, it's very odd that your last book was about families of people with differences and disabilities, that your previous one was about depression and mental illness, and that now you're publishing a book of international reporting. People have said, what on earth is the connection? But I think it's just what you've suggested. It's that I've always wanted to see if I can understand people who are radically different and find the vocabulary within which to translate those experiences of radical difference so that they are comprehensible to a larger audience. In the international work that I've done, I've described both scenes of great ecstasy and scenes of great disappointment. I was in Libya. Libya under Gaddafi was more terrible than you can possibly imagine if you didn't have to live there. And I was among those who supported the idea of going in and knocking out Gaddafi. But I was naive, and I didn't understand that you can't knock out what's bad and then assume that something good will automatically rise to take its place. And things in Libya have grown worse and worse. On the other hand, I reported from South Africa in the late days of apartheid, and just after the fall of apartheid. And in South Africa, when something terrible fell, something much better came to take its place. 
flawed, of course, as all governments and all nations are flawed, but much better than what was there before. And I was interested in investigating why in some instances these movements toward hope result in positive change, and why in some instances they seem to accomplish nothing at all. And in the idea that the moment of hope has value, even if the hope itself is ultimately frustrated. So, so there is a, I mean, for you there is a natural, um, I, I wouldn't say progression, but there's a, an, a natural, a nearly an organic um, progression, perhaps, from far from the tree and dispatches from everywhere, which is the book that is coming out any moment now. Yes, the book that's coming out is far and away reporting from the brink of change, and the first chapter of it is called Dispatches from Everywhere. Which is a, a chapter, I must say, that touched me so amazingly, and of course so amazingly because of that extraordinary story that you, you told me verbally, but which I now read um, of, of your father... I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether to, to ask you to re, to, to, to tell the story, um, or to read it. And I feel in some way that I want to read it because I think it's just such a good piece of writing. And I'd love the people who eavesdrop on our conversation to hear it because I think it is the first chapter of of your of your new book and I just love it. Shall I read it? If you would, that would be lovely. Thank you. I had one more question. Why didn't those Jews just leave when things got bad? This is you asking your father. I think you were seven then. Yes. They had nowhere to go, he said. At that instant, I decided that I would always have somewhere to go. I would not be helpless, dependent, or credulous. I would never suppose that just because things had always been fine, they would continue to be fine. My notion of absolute safety at home crumbled then and there. At seven... Precocious in my anxieties, if in nothing else. I remember, though, the fact of my father describing the Holocaust to me. It was such a defining experience. I think not only because we were Jewish, none of my family, to the best of my knowledge, had died in the Holocaust, but because I hadn't understood how cruel people could be or how disenfranchised a whole population could become. And part of what my father said was that the people who had had friends elsewhere had in some instances been able to go elsewhere. And so I had a sense not only of curiosity and ultimately of affection for people in different places, but also that there was an urgency to being able to be at home someplace else. I thought not only that I wanted to have friends who would take me in, but also that I wanted to develop whatever the skills were 
so that if I suddenly had to flee and go somewhere else, I could live there and I could have a good life there. I have a kind of counterphobic tendency. I was kind of a frightened child, and I rushed at foreign experience and at the rest of the world as a way of overcoming my underlying fear of it. Which is which is what find a way is in a way about. Yes, um, uh, it is what it's in a way about, and um, uh, and it's about what that engagement with the world came to look like, and what it was that happened as I went to these different places, and how I came ultimately to find myself capable of intimacy with people who were so amazingly different from me. I hope that that intimacy sometimes gave joy to them, but I know that it gave a very profound joy to me. It's a very strange thing, this this notion of intimacy with people who are so very different from oneself, who often one spends a very short amount of time with. And one one manages in those brief exchanges to plunge deeply and to be to really feel a connection i mean it's something that i often think in the the work i do myself which is not utterly dissimilar to yours so unfortunately i haven't yet written any great books or any books at all but it is the the possibility of of speaking with people and somehow you solicit in the conversation something that you didn't know existed for either of you before. Well, your gift for bringing out people's inner lives is quite remarkable, Paul. I know because you brought out mine on various occasions, public and private. So that's a real skill. I found that most people are interested in explaining themselves to people who really want to listen. Right. We're back to listening. Well, yes. And most people are actually curious about the lives of other people in other places. There's a tendency, I think, for much of journalism to consist only of coming with a list of questions already set and asking for answers to them. And I think that a journalistic interview should always be, in effect, a conversation. There should always be two people who are in dialogue, one of them telling the other as much as the other is telling him. So having said it's all about listening, it's also about communicating, and it's about responding to what someone has said, rather than coming with ideas already about what that person is going to say and asking questions on the basis of those assumptions. People surprise you. They're able to express things you wouldn't have thought they were able to express. But most profoundly, you can't understand how bewildering your way of thinking is to someone else until you've allowed yourself to be bewildered by that other person's way of thinking. And you can't imagine an authentic peace until you've ceased to be bewildered by someone else's difference. You know, you, the, the comment at the very beginning that I read of your, your father and your response about some people were able to escape because they had a place to go to. So much reminds me of of the kind of response I get from people when I tell them that my parents separately ended up spending the war years in Haiti, where they were 
107 Jewish families, very, very small amount. They met there, they got married there, they were married for 70 years and traveled the world in, in so many different ways and, and in so many different places and on so many different continents. And people will say, but why did they go to Haiti? As if there had been agency, as if there had been choice. They, they just managed to escape. And later on, when, when my father was asked, you know, even at age 90, he was asked, but why do you go to such and such a place in Italy when he was traveling for business? He would have an answer which I always loved. He said, I, I go there because it's, it's there. Yes. There. But I think a lot of the time one ends up someplace. And part of the difference between tourism and travel, which is a distinction I make at great length yes. far and away, is that tourism usually involves going to a place you have previously chosen to see things that you already know about. And that can be very illuminating and very educational. And I would never wish to disparage it. I've done a lot of tourism myself. Traveling involves going to some place because some odd set of circumstances has propelled you there that you don't know what it is you're going to find, that you have to open yourself to very new experience when you arrive, which is not to say that you can't also stay in a nice hotel and enjoy the cuisine, perhaps, depending on where it is, but it's about the sense that the strangeness of experience is, is out there to be discovered. And sometimes I found that when I was reporting from war zones, I was in Afghanistan during the invasion in 2002 and so on and so forth. Um, but sometimes I found it even in places I had gone in a relatively touristic fashion. So I remember being in the Solomon Islands and hiking into the highlands with a guide who took me to an area where they had not seen a foreigner um, in 20 years. And we arrived in a village and the villagers played us their music. And then they asked us whether there was music in our culture too. And we sang a little bit. And then they danced and they said, was there dancing in our culture too? And I was traveling with an old school friend as well as my husband and her husband. But she and I used to love swing dancing in high school. So in the middle of the jungle, on a mountain in the middle of the Solomon Islands, we began swing dancing under a full moon while the people of this village yapped and cheered. And I remembered as being such a wonderful moment. I felt as though they had let us into a world that so few people had seen, but we had let them also into a world that they would only ever have imagined in their most remote dreams. And there was a real feeling of revelation about that, as intense in some ways as the feeling of revelation there was in Afghanistan when I encountered people deeply enmeshed in the rebirth of that culture following the fall of the Taliban. And this kind of experience, um, what is it that doesn't permit it to happen? Well, in the first place, you have to be open to a certain amount of discomfort. I always think of that lovely line of Ruskins who was writing about improvements in travel and described going by train across the continent as being very much like becoming a parcel being sent from place to place. Like a bomb, 
didn't he didn't he think that the first trains were like like bullets? The trains were like bullets, but the experience of riding on them was like being a parcel rather than like being um, a voyager. Right. I think first you have to be open to the whole process of where you go and how you get there and so on and so forth. Um, I think you have to be willing to leave behind some of the preconceptions with which you embark on any trip. Um, but most profoundly, I suppose, um, you really have to be uh, open to um, the simple fact that other places are different, that other people value different things, and that you can't know what those are until you get there. And that if you go assuming that everyone wants whatever it is that you want, everyone wants wealth or education or democracy in the ways in which those exist on your home territory, and you feel sorry for the people who don't have those things, you may fail to see what particular freedoms they have, and you may never learn why they might feel sorry for you. You need instead to think, these are the things that have made my life rich and meaningful and worthwhile, and some things are universal. Love is pretty universal. But in terms of actual experience, what kind of experience and what kind of structure and shape of life, you have to go willing to recognize that the things that make sense to you are not the same as what will make sense to someone else. In some way, you have to both be porous and be be ready to feel displaced from yourself. Yes, and you have to welcome the displacement, which is never such an easy thing to no, do. No, it isn't. And you have to be willing to realize that when you go someplace else, two things happen. One is that you are very much changed, but the other is that in many ways you are very much strengthened in who you truly are. Because the part of yourself that persists both at home and abroad is really the essence of your being. And it's in that essence um, uh, that you come to see, this is who I really am, and these are the things that are only surface and decoration that actually I could change. It's like a kind of psychoanalysis in which you sort of lie down and you discover, I'm not quite the person I thought I was, and this, I guess, is who I am. 